Welcome to Behave, the behavioural science podcast where we discuss, explore and aim to showcase the practical benefits of layering behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth. Hosted by Pedro Martins, a director at Total Media, the behavioural planning agency. Remember to rate us on wherever you listen to podcasts and for any questions, feedback or requests for future topics, please email us at podcast at behave.co.uk. For more information on anything discussed in the episode and useful downloads, please visit behave.co.uk forward slash podcast. Welcome to Behave, the podcast that aims to showcase practical business benefits through the application of behavioural science to your marketing. Exploring the bias in the choice factory, I'm joined by the author Richard Chotton and Will Hannah Lloyd. And today we're going to be talking about why a lot of choice isn't always a good thing and can lead to what's known as choice paralysis. Richard, can you kick off by giving us a bit more background into this one? So choice paralysis is an idea that goes back about 20 years. It's a very famous study done by Iyengar and and Lepper in the early 2000s. And in their jam study, they worked with a a fancy supermarket, I think it's called Draeger's, and they persuade that supermarket to let them set up a, a stall. And sometimes they sell six varieties of jam, sometimes 24 varieties. And then they monitor two things. How many people stop and then how many people go on to buy jam. And in terms of stopping rates, it's just as classical economic economists would have predicted. More people stop when there's this broader variety of jams because there's a greater probability you're going to see a flavour that you particularly like. But brands don't care really about the stopping rate, they care about the purchasing rate. And Iyengar and Lepper found that people were much more likely, even when they'd taken into account the the differential stopping rates, they were much more likely actually to buy the jam by a factor of up to 10 when there was the smaller range. Now this, they put this down to the problem of if the act of choosing becomes too onerous or too problematic what people often do is just throw their hands up and walk away and think, well, I'm not going to bother buying today. So this became known as either choice paralysis or, after a famous Barry Schwartz book, uh, The Paradox of Choice. But since then, it's become one of the more contentious uh, biases. In the eight or nine years later, there was another study done by a slightly unpronounceable Swiss psychologist called Scheiben, um, where he tried to replicate their findings and couldn't pick up any results. So at first it became a thought that, well, actually, is this just a, you know, was the original experiment just a, a rogue finding? But a few years ago, what was more interesting was the final kind of development of this idea is that um, a psychologist called uh, Whitley went out and did a meta-analysis. That's a study of all the different studies that have been completed by psychologists to, f- to try and find a general rule of thumb. And what she found was that choice paralysis was very context-dependent. The, the act of picking isn't the same in all situations. So choice paralysis was most likely to occur when you either weren't particularly bothered by the differences, there were minimal differences between the products, when you weren't that interested in the category, when the category was quite a, a functional choice. And those factors led to choice paralysis becoming more likely to happen. Whereas if it was a particularly large purchase or an enjoyable purchase, then choice paralysis was less likely to happen. So what, what sort of categories are you talking about when you're 
They're the ones that are less likely or more likely to happen. So um, her and other psychologists have split the purchasing by, for example, hedonistic versus utilitarian choices. So the utilitarian choice might be a bleach or uh, what door lock you're going to get, whereas the hedonistic choice might be fashion items or, or perfume. So if you if you if you actually enjoy the the purchase journey, the shopping, then more choice is brilliant. If it's something that you frankly think is a bit of a chore, that's when choice paralysis is much more likely to happen. Right. Sounds more like my weekly shop then, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, and Will, what about you? Have you seen any evidence of this sort of bias? Oh, definitely. So um, I think, as Richard says, this is one of the interesting areas where the bias is contested at first and then understood to be context-specific. I think one interesting thing I always thought about the jam experiment is generally we care more about purchase, but in this instance, I feel the 24 drams that had more people who tried it probably had a researcher standing behind the table. It's not saying much, not doing much. If you had someone who thought themselves a very good jam salesman, <laughs> they might want the 24 to Fair attract play. more people, at which point they can sell it into them yeah. quite effectively. Good point. Um, so I think it's interesting that it's not just about the choice, it's about the context of then when they make the decision, uh, what you could do. Again, I agree, it's, it's not always replicated. I think one of the really interesting areas about where people do and don't want choice is where the product has an element of self-expression to it or not. So often people are slightly more worried about having too much choice when there's self-expression within the choice. And what I mean by self-expression is it will communicate to other people aspects of their personality, aspects of who they are, whether they're successful. Uh, and when that is involved, people can find the choice stressful and therefore find more choice difficult to navigate between. Can you give me an example of that? Uh, so there was a study done, I'm going to have to try and remember this, but uh, with CDs, uh, and when people were given a much wider range of choice, I believe they struggled because the music would say something about them and would communicate a little bit of who they are. Right, okay. um, and I think the same is true sometimes in fashion mm. uh, and in those sort of categories that we all know communicate a bit of who we are as people. So one of the things that someone else talked about was um, uh, American Apparel. I think that might be from you, Will. Can you give me, give me some context into that? So, yeah, I think what's interesting here is we've talked about the fact that this isn't always replicated uh, in studies, um, but that doesn't mean that it can't work incredibly powerfully for brands. Uh, and this was the chief digital officer talking about American Apparel. And based on the fact that people don't always want more choice... Uh, they actually reduced the number of homepage tabs they had from nine to four. Uh, and what they found was a 12% increase in conversion on their homepage when they gave people fewer options uh, because it was easier for people to find only a few items and decide what they wanted rather than find a huge amount of potential clothing and options and therefore feel quite stressed about what to pick. Interestingly, this potentially taps into what we said earlier about self-expression, that clothing is often very reflective of who you are and your personality, and that by giving people too much choice, you potentially start to add stress to the choice they're making and therefore increase the likelihood that they don't make a choice at all. But this, this also varies on the type of person you're talking to, right? Because, um, I mean, I've heard you both talk about in the past maximizers and satisfiers. Definitely. So when we talk about maximizers and satisfiers, the first thing is that um, it, it's not defined necessarily by 
this person is always a maximizer, this person is always a satisficer. It can be context specific. But to summarize, generally a maximizer is someone who enjoys and wants the process of finding all the options, exploring what's good, what's not, and likes to find the best thing available. I always consider it as the sort of person that when you go around their house will spend a lot of time telling you the details about the TV they've bought, even though you couldn't care less. <laughs> um, and I basically mean my dad when I'm talking about that. Um, whereas a satisficer is far more likely just to want something that is good enough, something that will do the job, but they don't have to be really stressed about finding the right thing. They were people that were far more likely to go on package holidays, eat at McDonald's even when they're in foreign countries, uh, will find that thing that's good enough and do the job. What I think is interesting is that these people are not always the same in every context. Some people will be maximizers in certain categories, one they care about, ones they like. Um, I, for instance, will spend a lot of time researching music, finding gigs I want to go to, comparing them, where they're at, what the venues are like. But if I was asked to spend time researching a mobile phone or new things for my house, I couldn't imagine anything worse uh, and would just pay someone to do it for me. And so people adapt. How much? Um, <laughs> just future reference, no? Okay. Quite a lot. So <laughs> it, it depends on the context mm. that you're in and the extent to which you care about that category, you feel confident in it, you have defined preferences. As Richard said, you're familiar or unfamiliar with the options, can affect the extent to which you're a maximizer or satisfier in any given category. One problem that marketing faces is that people who work in marketing departments tend to be maximizers in that category so if you've picked alcohol as the as the area that you want to work in as a marketer or tvs the odds are that it's a topic that interests you now that's a bit of an issue because most people in the category tend to be satisficers yet there is a lot of evidence from psychologists that we tend to extrapolate our own beliefs um, and behaviors onto other people uh, so maximizers are likely to assume that other people are maximizers as well in that in that category. So it comes known as the, the false consensus effect, right. this idea from a Stanford psychologist called Lee Ross. And he did a, a simple experiment where he gives people a thought experiment. He says, imagine you're driving down a country lane and you're caught speeding. And you're doing, like, say, 35 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone and you're given a ticket by the policeman, and a, say, £100 fine. But when you get home, you look at the ticket and you realise the policeman's made loads of mistakes. So he's spelt your name wrong, got the wrong number plate, got the wrong date. You've probably got reasonable grounds to get off this on a technicality. Would you um, try and get off on that technicality? Would you, you know, object, uh, appeal? People then answer yes or no. And then what he does is say, well, what do you think other people would do? And the key finding is people who said they would appeal, imagine the majority of others would appeal. People who said, well, of course I wouldn't appeal, uh, they imagine the majority of other people wouldn't appeal either. So there is this well-researched finding that we imagine our views are a little bit more common than they actually are. So that can be an issue because marketers will end up designing communications and tactics that work really well against maximisers rather than people who um, probably don't really give that much thought and considered reflection to the category.
I think that's true. For instance, having commented earlier on people who talk about their TVs, <laughs> even though I know maximise and satisfices, I will bore someone for hours about the background of the niche hip-hop star <laughs> that I recently saw live, assuming <laughs> that they're as interested in it as I am. Um, I think the other thing that backs up this maximizer satisficer dynamic is that often now, maximizers, we can see their digital touch points we can see what they do as a consumer journey before they buy. We can see the searches that they're making. We can see visits to review sites. We can see visits to your site. We've got all of this data on this long, complex, research-heavy journey that these maximizers are going through. We then extrapolate from that, oh, people are researching a lot. They're putting a lot of time in. This is backed up by the fact that when you have claimed data, which we've talked about before and I think we'll talk about again, is not always accurate, people will often claim that they do a lot more research, put a lot more effort in, than is actually true, because they don't like to admit that they're scared making decisions, that they just made it based on the one that looked prettiest. And so we think that it's always this long journey, this research-heavy, all these touch points to influence people, and it pushes us towards more digital activation solutions than necessary branding solutions that will affect satisficers much more. So it's, uh, um, the way you're talking, it sounds like you've got a couple of examples in mind of where, you, where that's been applied. It'd be good to hear that, actually, because that might, sort of for me, certainly explain some of the, the differences between both of those and how you connect with them. So one uh, big example was actually uh, working with Dixon's Carphone quite a few years ago, uh, and you can find a lot of the consumer journey within that of people buying laptops and buying mobile phones. Um, and it kind of, you can become obsessed with all of these touch points and influencing people and putting lots of budget there. When you were saying, actually, you don't want to forget about this massive pool of people that walk into Dixon's, more profitable to you, and go, I need to buy a laptop, I want the memory to be good so I can buy, play computer games or some other individual question. They just want to know it will be good enough. And that can be really powerful if you do brand messaging to those people. You can actually influence far more of them and actually get them to buy. And I think one really interesting aspect as well is that maximizers are far harder to influence. If you're trying to influence someone with advertising, but they've also read reviews, been on websites, talked to people, you are one touch point amongst 100 Whereas if you try and influence a satisficer who isn't doing all those behaviours, you're actually competing against far fewer amounts of information and can therefore more likely influence them. So I think it's a really strong argument for pushing people towards brand. And, and Richard, what about you? I mean, you've talked about a few different examples in your, in your book and in the chapter. Is there anyone that comes to mind that actually has done this well, not done it so well? Well, one area I think is quite interesting is in the experiments the the reaction of the psychologists or what they test is reducing choice in an absolute sense so you go from 24 jams too much choice to six jams a lot of businesses restricting their range in that absolute way is not very appealing to them so an alternative is to say to people look you can keep the same uh, volume and variety of products you've got but use biases and messages inspired by those biases to make the act of picking easier. So one example would be Waterstones. Now, you don't want to walk into Waterstones and there only be six books. You want there to be that huge range. 
But if that huge range was just given to you in a very unstructured manner, then it would be very confusing. Mm. So they do a few things. They chunk up the choices. So you don't just see all the books randomly scattered around the store. They'll chunk it into categories to make it easier. You know, you have biographies and uh, crime fiction and uh, thrillers. They use social proof. So they'll flag up on the bookshelf most popular choices or the or the book publishers themselves will do that on the stickers on the books they'll use social proof they'll say a number one bestseller on, I see on that the on your cover. book all the time actually yeah. Richard thank you um, and then the third and final one the one I love about uh, Waterstones is they will apply this bias of authority they will get the uh, shop staff to write those little cards which say what are their favourite books so it gives people it gives shoppers a way of navigating that choice without just weighing up the pros and cons of every book. So they'll head to the ones that are either on offer or, or um, in, in the authority case, have been flagged up by, by, the, by the, start, the shop assistants. So for, um, for brands and advertisers, do you, say, do you think there's a danger then that, going back to your point earlier about maximisers, and that you believe everyone else is a maximiser because you're in that industry. It's almost like uh, an element of social proof for yourself, that they just assume everybody knows about their brand, they knows all the qualities. So it's more about actually there's a danger of over-communicating or under-communicating. So I think it's often the danger of what you communicate. Right. You know, to appeal to a maximiser, as Will says, firstly, it's, it's very hard, but you might, you'll end up talking to them about some uh, kind of niche element of the product that only aficionados will really think is important. If you want to win over a satisficer, well, social proof's probably a very good way of doing that. They want to avoid a awful purchase that you know, completely bombs. And knowing something is the most popular in the category is a very good way of avoiding that 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 kind of big risk. Whereas that probably won't appeal to a maximizer. I think on creative it's a good point. Nearly always you see in car categories, mobile categories now, they'll focus on a small USP that communicates the thing about that phone that's the best. And that appeals as a message potentially to a maximizer, but you have to ask how many people care about those small features. Often what people want to know is, is it reliable? Will it do the job? Will it function at a decent enough level that I know I'm getting something good enough? And yet very few brands want to communicate that about themselves because it feels like an uninspiring message, if potentially powerful message to communicate. Are there times or contexts where it's right target maximisers? Yeah, so I think it's important that we've talked about satisficers and the fact that we sometimes undervalue them as a group and therefore don't do the appropriate amount of mass brand messaging to them that we should. But there are contexts where maximizers could be really useful. We actually um, did this for Moto, uh, which is a mobile phone brand. And when they were kind of re-entering the market with phones, they weren't a particularly powerful brand compared to some of their competitors. And the level of spend needed to compete with their competitors was beyond their budgets. Um, but what they felt they had was a phone that actually in the detail was better than competitors on the market. That when you looked into it, the battery life, the quality of the camera, uh, other features for a mid-priced phone were better. And so what we said was what we need to do is find the maximizer group that will spend the time and care enough to find out those details about your brand, communicate to them and they will actually care enough to find out, see that you are better in the detail, and then buy you. And so we created a number of digital touch points that suggested people were maximizers, 
and advertise this phone to them because we felt they would make a decision not based on the brand, but based on the time and effort they would put in to find out the detail about this mid-range Moto phone. And did it work? Uh, the sales were very strong in the UK, so I think it was successful. We didn't have a test group or another campaign to market against, but in of itself, it was a successful campaign. Well, it's better than the alternative than just broad, bra- broad brush targeting everybody. Only because of the specifics of that phone mm. and where their brand was. If they had a more powerful brand or if they had a phone that on closer inspection wasn't as good as the mid-market options, then it wouldn't have been the right approach. So I think it's very much about understanding the brand, the category, to understand what your approach should be at that moment in time. Um, in summary, what I've taken from that is that the cognitive effort required to compare choices can be daunting. And therefore, sometimes the easy choice becomes to make no choice at all. This does depend on whether we're talking about maximizers or satisfiers. So to get around this, we can chunk up choices, we can use authority, or social proof, which we discussed last week, and also the context needs to be taken into consideration. If you want to win a signed copy of Richard Shotton's book, please remember to rate us on whatever platform you're listening to, and we'll pick a winner at the end of every week. Will, Richard, thanks again, and until next week. This podcast is brought to you by Total Media, the behavioural planning agency an innovative approach to behavioral insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth.